And we do indeed come to praise the name of the Lord our God. Happy Easter. There is no more important celebration or remembrance in the life of the Christian church, or certainly in the life of a believer, than the time that we set aside to intentionally reflect upon the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and His death on our behalf and His resurrection. Our Savior, Jesus The Christ, Jesus, who went to the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. Jesus, who was laid in in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. And Jesus, who was raised from the grave, defeating death and giving life. Giving eternal life, God's life. This morning, and you may be wondering why... On Easter Sunday, we're reading from the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter. That seems kind of early in the story of Jesus' life and ministry. When we're focusing upon the cross and the resurrection, which seems kind of closer to the end of his incarnated life, the end of the story. And yet, it is an appropriate message. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came, he said, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came not to instruct us in a way to get to God, but to be the way that we can have a relationship with God, that we can know God and have an intimate relationship with him. And so there's a great passage of scripture that Sharon has already read this morning that we've turned our hearts and our attention to as we listen to Jesus and his interaction with this woman at the well. And, and, and I want us to just kind of focus on this story a little bit. Let me begin this account by telling you a little bit about this woman that is from the text and that can be inferred from the text. She was not identified as being particularly young or nor particularly old. She was a Samaritan, certainly not of the same race as Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan, mixed race, a descendant of the northern tribes who had intermarried, and there was a great deal of racial animosity between their peoples. The society that she lived in was very patriarchal. Men were in charge. When they walked down the street, the women had to walk behind. A man would not talk to a woman in public unless they were related or he had an, in, uh, some sort of established relationship with her. You didn't casually engage in those kind of conversations. She, like everybody else, wanted a good life and she had obviously tried to find acceptance and fulfillment in her relationships with men. But in that, she was not successful, first one man and then the other, until she had been married five times and even now was in another relationship with a man that she was not married to. We know, and can infer from the text, that she was not accepted by her peers. She wasn't a popular person. As a matter of fact, women would come and draw water from Jacob's well. Jacob's well was one that had been established for centuries. It was in just the southern side of Samaria. It was outside of the village, a little village called Sychar. And the women would come early in the morning. And in the morning, it was cooler. So it was easier to make the trick trip to, to get out there and, and draw water. Plus, you needed water all day. You needed water to bathe. You needed water to wash. You needed water to cook. You needed water to clean. All of your daily activities required water. And so the women would come early in the morning, usually in groups. You know how that works. 
Ah, and just traveling together. But this woman came at the sixth hour. Now, they started their clock at six in the morning. So if you start at six in the morning and you count to six, you get to the middle of the day. She's in the hottest part of the day. And she's not in a crowd. She's by herself. And so she's a social outcast. She's not part of the popular group. Um, what really strikes me about this woman is how normal she is. How that though her story and her life took place 2,000 years or so ago, she has so much in common with us and so much in common with so many of us who live here in the upstate of South Carolina today. I mean, she had struggles. Who doesn't? She had some difficult times and she made some pretty bad mistakes. And yet I think that if you were to ask her, she would have said she was doing the best she could do under the circumstances. That she was making her way through life. But now let's turn our attention to the encounter and her encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've, we've kind of got a taste for who the woman is. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. He is God incarnate in human flesh. He's the agent of creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they created. And yet Colossians chapter 1 tells us that all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John chapter 1 tells us in him was life and the life was the light of men. John makes that clear. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he was the agent of creation. He has always been. He will always be. He is God. One of the Trinity. Part of the Godhead. And yet being God. He didn't grasp that. But he humbled himself. And emptied himself. Kenosis is the Greek word. And he came and took on flesh. You remember what we celebrate at Christmas. God coming to us. In the form of a baby born of Mary. According to God's definite plan. When the time was fulfilled and the time was right. He came and he came for a specific purpose. And he has begun his earthly ministry now. He had been baptized by John the Baptist who had heralded his coming. And as our story picks up in John chapter 4. He had been with the disciples in the countryside of Judea. He had been traveling in the south. And now he was moving north. Now it's really not that far according to our standards from Jerusalem and Judea, the Judean area, up to Galilee. But he's heading up to Galilee. It's closer than from here to Columbia. It's, it, it would be like going from here to Gaffney is, is about the distance that we're, we're looking at traveling. And we can jump in the car and get it there pretty quick. They could not. And so they traveled on foot, walking. And I love the way that verse 3 says, Jesus said, I need to go this way. I need to go <laughs> this direction. I need to go to Samaria or through Samaria. Well, you could say geographically, Samaria was between Jerusalem and Galilee. However, a lot of the Jews, because of the political and the racial issues, would cross the Jordan, go north, and hop back on the other side once they got to the north. But not Jesus. He needed to go, and I think he needed to go because he had a divine appointment. They traveled by foot, started early, and they got tired and hungry. And as they got tired and hungry, they came to Jacob's well. Jesus sits there by the well. The disciples going into town to get something to eat, uh, which I can certainly relate to. And as Jesus is sitting there and the disciples are going, here comes our lady, our woman. We just call her the woman at the well. Jesus, when he speaks to her and addresses her, according to this text, he just refers to her as woman. And just 
I want you to take a little specific note of the few thing of a few things that I've already mentioned. One is that there was a racial barrier between Jesus and this woman, Samaritan, Jew. There was a gender barrier. Why would you, a man, speak to me, a woman of Samaria? There's a gender barrier. There was a religious barrier. We heard in the text read earlier that you say to worship in Jerusalem, we say to worship here in the mountain, and there was a religious barrier different religious beliefs and there was obviously some sort of status barrier she was a social outcast jesus perfectly righteous and yet jesus speaks to her he engages her in conversation and it's not some simply a casual conversation though it it begins as one this is more than just being socially sensitive. This is more than just being a a kind man or having good manners. This is the Savior speaking to a lost woman, a woman who does not know God, a woman who does not know Him, and He's introducing Himself. He is giving her good news. He is going to give her the gospel. Never forget... That the gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And he does not come to show us a way to get to God. He is the way. And he has come to offer her living water. And so, for those of you who are taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, the first point I'd like you to take note of, it's a very simple statement, but I think it's an important one, particularly in our world today, is that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Another way of saying that is that no one is beyond the reach of grace. It is true that, particularly in the South, but I would say in the United States and in many countries around the world, the most racially divided time that we have is on Sunday mornings when we gather in groups to worship. And I don't believe that these things ought to be. I don't know that it is always a case of sinfulness on the part of believers, but I do think that we need to recognize that as people who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we create barriers to the gospel that God has never created. And that any barrier from us displaying the love of Christ to another person and us telling the good news to another person and us being willing to open our hearts and our minds and embrace another person, there is no barrier that the gospel does not overcome. None. Not any. We're studying the book of Acts, as you recall, and when Peter began to preach at Pentecost, you say, well, that was... a." homogeneous group that was jews in jerusalem yes but it was jews from many nations many cultures around the known world at that time any barriers that stand between us and displaying and demonstrating the saving grace of god are of our own making there is no terrorist beyond the grace of god ask the apostle paul who terrorized Christians until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. There is no wealthy person that God does not love that Jesus' blood cannot cover. Ask Cornelius, the wealthy Roman, or ask Lydia, the seller of purple. There is no poor person that is beyond the reach of grace. Ask the widow who had the two mites on the temple mount. There is no political conservative beyond the grace of God ask Simon the zealot and there is no political liberal beyond the grace of God check with Levi or check with Zacchaeus there is no person listen to me the apostle Paul gives this 
amazing statement in his letter to the church at Corinth. But there is no person, though they be unrighteous, and though that unrighteousness be expressed in sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or homosexuality or sexual sin, or thieves, or those who are greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers and scorners, nor swindlers, there are none beyond the grace of God. After, God, after Paul gives that list, to his next phrase to the Corinthians is, some of you were there, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So, the first point, very simple, folks. Church, never forget the reach of the gospel, never forget the reach of grace. Be glad that the gospel came to you and that grace was shown to you and be used by God to proclaim the gospel and to extend the reach of grace. Don't let any man-made barrier stop you. It does not stop Jesus. When Jesus did this to the woman at the well, he was not condemning. He was not condescending. He was, however, calling Very important to note that he was calling. He was presenting the gospel in a very real way. Introducing himself. Listen again to uh, part of this conversation. In verse 10, Jesus answered her. After he asked for water, and and he says, if you knew who you're talking to. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now listen to this now. Jesus, again, he's introducing himself. He's telling her the good news that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior. He says, Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the water in the well, Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. You have to come here to draw water. Now, I love this. Jesus says, I've come to give you living water. What is the living water? Well, obviously, it's not a physical thing. Jesus says, I have something that your soul needs that your heart needs, that your life needs, as much as your body needs water. Have you ever been thirsty? I mean really thirsty. I mean like dehydrated, dusty mouth, maybe hot, maybe not. I tend to associate thirst with heat, and you're just really thirsty. And then someone brings you water, or you come across water, you don't just casually sip it. Oh, glad I, got some, <laughs> glad I got some water. You can feel it cool, refreshing, and sweet as it floods your mouth, as it goes down your throat. You can almost feel it going through your body, and you don't sip it. You guzzle it. You bathe in it. What is this living water that Jesus offers to her, to, to this woman? It is eternal life. He describes it as a wellspring that's, that, that springs up to eternal life. What is that? Listen to me. It is the assurance by the Holy Spirit of God's love 
of his forgiveness, of his presence, and of his grace. What is this living water? It is salvation. It is cleansing. It is being washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's being forgiven. It's being released from guilt. It's being born to new life. It's having an intimate relationship with Almighty God. I mean, it is, it is satisfying. It is contentment. It is peace that lasts. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And it's only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that, don't you? When Jesus talked about this living water and you'll never thirst again, the woman said, sign me up. How do I get this? I want some of that. I don't want to have to keep coming back here to this well. I certainly don't want to have to keep coming in the middle of the day. And it would be nice to be fully satisfied and never thirst again. Sign me up. And you would think as an evangelist, Jesus would say, great, convert. Let's put your name on the list. Sign you up. You're done. And he doesn't do that at all. Why? Because what she's looking for is a better life. She's looking for her life to improve. She's looking for her problems to diminish or go away. She's looking for her struggles to lighten or to lessen. She's looking for her best life on this earth at this time. And Jesus is offering so much more than that. He's come not to improve her life, but to replace it, to give her a new life. He's come to be her life. He's come to not only help her heart. And a lot of times we think of Christianity as I've got a friend who's going to help me. He's going to be my struggle. And it's true that God is our helper and the Holy Spirit is our helper. But he is our strength and he is more than just simply helping us having a good life. He has come to give her and to give us a completely new heart. Now, when you're following this conversation where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, it almost seems like he changes the subject. That living water, I want some of that. And Jesus immediately says, uh, go get your husband. And she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. Now, was she lying when she said, I don't have a husband? She wasn't. But she wasn't being entirely honest either. Because the only acceptable way for an adult woman in that day to not have a husband would be if she was a widow. And so Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. But just so that you know, I know the current condition of your heart, you've had five. And the man that you're living with now, he's not your husband. Why did he do that? What is the point that he's making? If you want to understand what living water is. I believe this is what Jesus was conveying. If you want to understand what I'm talking about, this thing that fills you with life and that satisfies you completely, you need to understand that you're already trying to find it. For this woman, she was digging wells looking for contentment. She was looking for what she thought was missing in her life and her search for satisfaction, her search for pleasure, her selfish, driven need, she was trying to meet by going from relationship to relationship. 
man to man. And I want to give you just a word. If, you, if you're here and you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith, you're worshiping something and you're pursuing something. And if you are seeking your fulfillment in life in any created thing, you're going to thirst again. There are some people who are driven by money. Money, money, money is what they think about when they wake up. It's what they think about when they go to sleep. And it encompasses the, kind of the, the drive of the ambition of their life. There are others who are just all about pleasure, food to eat or things to drink. All about the next experience that satisfies me. There are some people who are codependent or they are, are, are unable to function in solitude. They always have to be in a relationship. And they, they, I have talked to many men who need a woman to feel complete or many women who feel like they have to have a man to be complete. And I'm grateful that God has designed us to come together in relationships appropriately according to His Word. But if you are looking for your husband to meet your needs, you're going to be disappointed Any wives here say amen? Don't. I'm kidding. If you're looking for a wife to satisfy and bring you peace and joy and to be your savior as a fact, you're going to be disappointed. Amen? Your children are a gift from God. And they are a great blessing to you. When you elevate them to the point of worshiping them or allowing them to be your God, they make lousy gods. And you will be disappointed again and again. Some people worship or seek their satisfaction and contentment in beauty and physical fitness. Some people seek it by just one adventure after the next. No satisfaction, no lasting peace, no lasting joy, always thirsty, and it's always frustrating. Because anywhere that you look for soul satisfaction, one theologian theologian has called this soul, what it means to be made whole in Christ. If you look for that, for completeness, for contentment, everything that you look for that is created that is not Christ is going to make you work for it. They're going to make you have to earn it, and yet... What is this living water that Jesus is offering? It is a free gift. It is eternal life. It is a gift of grace. You cannot earn it. You can't qualify yourself for it. You receive it. And it's a gift that everyone needs. And the second point on your outline, for those of you taking notes, and again, very simple statements, but statements that I hope drive this home to us, is that everyone is lost. Everyone is thirsty if you will. Everyone is separated from God by sin apart from God's grace. God's free gift of eternal life. Jesus said, "Uh, go get your husband. And I imagine she was thinking, he's getting personal now. I don't want to be too forthcoming here. I'll just tell him I don't have a husband. And she does, and he says, I know. But I know you've had five. I know you're with a man right now who's not. And she's beginning to understand that what he's talking about is her heart. And so she deflects. Because i got to tell you, when the Lord starts exposing the reality of our heart, we want to change the subject, don't we? It's a good time to talk about something else. And so she does. 
She's like, ooh, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> you must be a religious guy. Let's talk about religion. You say, worship in Jerusalem. We say, worship on this mountain. Who's right? And you know what? Jesus engages her. But he engages her with the point. Basically, his answer is, you say this mountain, we say Jerusalem, Jerusalem's right. The temple in Jerusalem is the temple that God established. It's where the priests are continually offering up sacrifices. The temple in Jerusalem, he said, but the hours come and now is when it doesn't matter where the temple is. You'll be able to worship God anywhere, anytime. What has been taking place in the temple is that a sacrifice has been given again and again and again and again. A priest will come and he will take an animal and he will slay the animal and his blood will be on the altar. And that will be a way, a sign that actually points to me. How do you get that from the text? Jesus says, the hour is come and now is. In that phrase, in John 4, when he's talking about this woman, and every time he uses the phrase, the hour the hour in the Gospel of John. Every time he uses that phrase, he's pointing to the cross when his hour will be complete. When his purpose for coming as the perfect Lamb of God will be brought to fruition. Jesus says, in effect, you say this temple, we say that temple, there's an hour coming when I will do away with the temple. You'll not need a temple to worship. Because those sacrifices, I will be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The perfect Lamb of God who takes away the, the, the sins of the world. A priest to mediate between you and God. You no longer need a priest to mediate between you and God because I am the way to the Father. A temple, a geographic location that you have to go to according to the dictates that God has given through the law is replaced. And now those who worship God can worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit and those who worship Him will worship Him in spirit and truth. And I will give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead who will indwell you. Do you understand what's taking place in this conversation? Jesus is making sure that she knows that that her life is, is frustrating. That the things that she's been pursuing and the way that she has been living leaves her thirsty, leaves her incomplete, leaves her lost, separated from God. Isaiah 59, 2, Behold, your sins have separated between you and our God. But he's also making sure she knows that he is the only Savior. That's the third point in your outline. Again, a simple statement. One that's very important that we grasp. Jesus is the only Savior. Every other religion gives you things to do to get to God. And Jesus says, I've done all that needs doing. What you could not do in order that you may know My hour is coming, the hour is coming, and now is when those who worship him shall worship him in spirit and truth. How do we know that he's talking about the cross? Not only because of his use of the word hour, but what happened on the cross? You guys remember the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross? We have seven that are recorded in the Gospels. What's the first? Do you remember the first? And as you go through those sayings, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. He says, I thirst. 
Well, of course he's thirsty. He's been beaten. He's been awake all night. He's gone from kangaroo trial to kangaroo trial. He's been, he's been forced to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, outside the city gates up to Golgotha. Of course he's thirsty. I believe, though, that that indicates something more. I believe that ties into his, his cry when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? You understand what he did on the cross was... For her sins and the punishment of a righteous God against those, He went to the cross. For your sins and for my sins and for the sins, His blood is sufficient for the sins of everyone who has ever lived. His his blood is sufficient. And He comes to identify Himself as the Savior. On the cross, He was experiencing the incredible wrath of God. He thirsted. That we might have living water. And when she gets that, life changes. Life changes. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, paraphrase, that's me. I, who speak to you, am he. Don't miss Jesus. He's the gospel. He did not come to show us the way He is, the way He did not come to give us a better life or to improve our life upon this earth or to solve our problems. He came to give us new life. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men, by the cross. God raised Him, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible For him to be held by it. By the cross and by the empty tomb. I hope you have been filled with the living water that is Christ. It is my heartfelt prayer. That you have the assurance by the Holy Spirit of God's love. That you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That you have experienced his forgiveness. His presence and his peace. But we meet people every day. Every day who don't know Jesus who don't know God who have are living lives old phrases redundant words living lives of quiet desperation living lives somehow trying to find peace in this world running from one thing to the next unable to find it because it's only found in God And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I pray that God will take just this presentation that Jesus gives this woman, this this offer of living water, this offer of eternal life, this offer of having a real relationship, real contentment, real joy, real peace, real forgiveness, this offering of escaping the just punishment for sin and being given grace instead. I hope that you will take it to heart. And that the Holy Spirit will keep bringing this to your mind. And that He will draw you and convict you. And that you will respond. What happened? A transformation took place. A conversion took place. This woman, when she went, after meeting Jesus, when she went back to town, she was a different woman. Her testimony had changed. And what was her testimony? I've met Jesus. Come see a man. Come see a man. Come see this man who told me all I'd ever done. And when they came and they listened to him teach, he stayed there two days. They said, we believe. 
We believe, not simply because of your testimony, but because of what we've heard with our own ears. And if you've never come to Him and had your life made new in the Lord Jesus Christ, a heart change. I don't mean behavioral modification. I mean a new heart by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can. By responding in repentance, turning from sin, and faith. Immerse yourself in the living water. Cast yourself upon him. I understand this is possible because of the grace of God. This is possible because of the cross of Christ. This is possible because of the empty tomb. For those of us who are believers, we're going to take a moment now and a few minutes as we go through the close of this service to remember what happened on the cross. To celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that seems like a strange thing to celebrate, doesn't it? Why would you celebrate someone's passing? Why would you celebrate a, a death of crucifixion? Because of what God accomplished in this death. By His death, we are made alive. By His resurrection, we have the opportunity to have life. Eternal life. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper by His command. Now let me explain this a little bit, if I may. Because of changes in, in, in our response of trying to keep everyone healthy rather than passing plates around at this point, we have these containers. And in each of these, there's a little wafer at the top. Right? That is to symbolize, and it is at least some expression of, unleavened bread. That's what Jesus was eating with his disciples in the upper room at the Passover. This is bread that does not rise. And it is bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And he, we, in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Here, this is, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And so this wafer, when we eat this, we remember the body, the incarnate body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was broken on our behalf. There is juice in this cup sealed in there. By the way, when you open this, you do one at a time. There's a top layer that will release the wafer and then a bottom layer that will open it up the little cup. And then we'll take that together. And that is a symbol of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. For centuries, the Jews practiced animal sacrifice. And the whole purpose for that was to point to the one true sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, His blood, that takes away the sin of the world. So we celebrate His death, and we celebrate His life. She, the woman at the well, encountered the living Lord Jesus. If you're hearing a believer, you're a believer, so have you. So have you. And we celebrate His gift of grace. And so as they play... I'm going to invite those of you who are Christians, those of you who have made this relationship with God, uh, have this relationship with God by repentance and faith, to come and get one of these. And you can each come up individually, or you can send a representative from your row, or a representative from your family to come. But just come, and just to help the traffic pattern, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to make you guys walk longer to begin with and sit quicker. But we'll go around this way across the front. Pick one up and just return to your seat and we'll partake of the elements together. Let's do this now. On the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, it's important for us to note that bread, as like water, is a symbol that Jesus uses for life. Speaking of himself, he says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. But he that eateth this bread, speaking of himself, shall live forever. In the same manner, he also took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. The cup. According to the law, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And then John writes, If we walk in the light as He is the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We celebrate the cross, and His death on the cross, where He died to pay the penalty for our sin, the greatest expression of love. But now hath God commended His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we celebrate the empty tomb because of the resurrection. The gospel is fruitful and faith is real and alive. Because of the resurrection, our lives are made new. We have a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And become the dwelling place of God. Because of the resurrection, we have that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, living inside of us and working in us. Because of the resurrection, we have the promise of eternal life. Death is a defeated foe. We live because He lives. Church, we have much to celebrate. Isn't God good? Let's do that again with a great deal of enthusiasm. Isn't God good? He is good indeed. Christ The Lord is risen.